Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and we've got an action-packed podcast. Uh, we had the CPI report come out this past week, the Consumer Price Index, inflation report, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then we're going to dive right into a topic that we're spending a fair amount of time on, that's uh, cybersecurity and what it means for the financial system and the economy. We've done some uh, good work there and invited a few guests to talk about cyber and the threat that it poses to the economy. But, but before we do that, let's uh, 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 dive right into the inflation report. And as you got tell tell guys, Marissa, Chris, no no banter, no chit chat. This is we're down to business here. Uh, so uh, unless, you've got, unless there's something important that's happened in your lives that you want me to. To, to everyone to know about. No, there's nothing important in our lives. Just <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Just the CPI. Uh, Just the CPI report. Nice. And yeah. we've got Matt. Collier. Uh, uh, oh, I got the last name right. Collier, right? Okay. No. Oh, jeez. Marissa. Collier. Oh, there we go. Collier. Oh, Matt Collier. Uh, nice. There's more about that it, later in the podcast. Yeah. We've we're, we've recorded the the uh, the cyber before we recorded this. So I won't belabor the point, but uh, you'll, you'll hear more about Matt's name shortly. Uh, but Matt, what's that? Stay tuned. Yeah. Stay tuned. <laughs> stay, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Uh, and as you can tell, we're getting a little punchy because this is Friday afternoon before Martin Luther King's birth, uh, birthday weekend. And so we're getting a little, little punchy here. Um, but let's talk about the inflation report. And um, let me, I think the way to characterize it is it was, a little on the hot side, meaning inflation came in a little stronger than anticipated, kind of on the margin. I think we were expecting top line CPI inflation to increase in the month of December by three tenths of a percent. Core uh, CPI, excluding food and energy, to come in at two tenths of a percent. And both came in at kind of three tenths, on, kind of on the high side of three tenths, if you kind of look at the second or third significant condition. So a little bit on the high side, but this comes after a string of you know, very good inflation reports. And I, I, I don't even think I'd characterize this as a bad report. It's just not quite as good as we anticipated. Uh, but what I thought we would do uh, to uh, help uh, the listener is go through those parts of the CPI report that were surprising, you know, kind of why was inflation a little bit hotter? Because I think there's, a, you know, a lot of things to learn there and a lot of uh, uh, important messages. And uh, first of all, I'm going to turn to you, Matt. Uh, uh, did I characterize the report correctly? Uh, and I should say on a year-over-year -year basis, I think top-line CPI is now 3.4%. Is that right, Matt? I think it's 3.4. Three, three. Or is it 3.3? Three, three? And yeah. I think whether it's seasonally adjusted or unadjusted. And the core year-over-year -year is now 3.8, I want to say. You know, something like that. Three nine. Three, three, nine. three nine. Okay, three right nine. Uh, under three four. Nine. It starts with a three. Oh, okay, it starts with a three for yeah. the first time in a long time. Yeah. Uh, and it, in my re it, first of all, did I get that I characterize it right? That this is it was on the hot side, hotter than we expected, but no big deal. It's still consistent with the idea that inflation is going to continue to moderate here. Is that kind I of think sort of a fair characterization? Okay. Yeah. And, and Marissa, Chris, any objection to that characterization? None. Nope. Hearing none. Okay, fine. Okay, so the I think the biggest kind of surprise why inflation came in on the hot side was the growth in the cost of housing services, which is a very large component of CPI. So my sense of it is that the 
the if I had to rank order the reasons why inflation came in a little bit hotter than anticipated, the number one reason was that the growth in the cost of housing services was it ex, it actually picked up in December as opposed to decelerating further as we had anticipated. Is is that is that correct? That's fair. Owners of equivalent rent shelter costs are, are all still buoyant, not coming down, and and a major contributor to inflation. Okay. So uh, we've we've had this long-standing view that the growth in the cost of housing services as measured in the consumer price index, and again, it's over a third of the index, is ultimately tied by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the keeper of the data, back to market rents. And if you look at market rents, uh, they are flat to down for about a year. Uh, and all signs are that that will continue for at least another year because there's a lot of supply in the multifamily market, and we've talked about this in the past, coming to market. So vacancy rates are going to rise, put downward pressure on rent. And we expect that weakness in rents to start showing up in much slower growth in the cost of housing services as measured by the CPI. Is that is that right? Roughly right? Yeah, absolutely. And to kind of buttress that, you take shelter out and we're at where the Fed wants to be already, about 2%, a little under 2% now, and that's not the first time we've been there. Uh, So it's been a few months. This kind of uh, anticipated decline hasn't happened, or it's happening, but happening slowly. So the the conversation is, uh, why is it so stickier than anticipated? Yeah, you make a great point. If you take CPI, exclude food and energy, get to core, and then throw out shelter, I know we're throwing out a lot of stuff, but I mean, it makes a point. Inflation, CPI inflation year over year is, I think, no more than 2% or it's very close to 2%. 1.9%. So if the growth in the cost of housing services was simply back to something more typical, normal, that would suggest all that all else being equal, we would be back to target. And that, I think, people take a lot of solace, particularly in the context of we feel confident that the growth in the cost of housing services is going to slow because it's it's almost an accounting exercise. It's it's, it's not really a, a like an economic forecast. Mm-hmm. And do, do, do you agree with that, Matt? Is that I know I'm leading the witness here, but I'm getting I'm actually going to get to a question where you you can say you can you can riff a little bit. Is that yeah? I, I the, the the third party rent rent indexes that you're referencing that everybody references. You, you look at negative one, zero, one, 2% year over year growth. Um, it's been about a year that that's been the case. Um, so it is a calculation method of the way the BLS looks at rent, uh, the way that they use that same calculation or similar calculation to determine owner's equivalent rent, which is what you, what a homeowner could rent their house for. All of this is predicated on rent growth. And, and we have this really reliable data to say that that moderation is, has been ongoing. Um, so... Yes, I, I, I certainly agree. Okay, so here's the question. Why isn't the growth in the cost of housing services slowing more quickly? I mean, what what's the deal? I mean, what is it just a measurement thing, seasonal adjustment issue? Are we missing something? I'm getting, Should I be nervous that my confidence that the growth in the cost of housing services is going to continue to decelerate because that's what I see in rents? Am I missing something? 
it's certainly not something with a ton of history to rely on and say, hey, after 11 months or 12 months or 13 months, this is the deceleration in, in the CPI with the BLS. The official statistics are going to say, um, I've heard persuasive, relatively persuasive uh, theories as to why it's it's been happening uh, a little bit more slowly than, than we're thinking. Um, What's that? What the group thinks. That the BLS has been really behind on price appreciation, inf- housing inflation, and and so kind of the two peaks of, of rental growth and from Zillow, from apartment list, uh, that gap is going to be a little bit wider than 12 months because uh, the BLS is still playing catch up on, on housing inflation that already happened. So subsequently, the, you know, the ending of, of rent growth is taking longer to show up as well. That's a theory. I, I hmm. I think it's relatively persuasive, but curious what the group here thinks. Chris, what do you think? What, I mean, should we be worried about this? That it's overly is it persistent, meaning that it's not going to slow, or at least not slow to the degree that we need it to to get back to target. Uh, so I think it's a measurement you issue. Think it's so measurement. It's, it's, it is possible that that measurement issue is going to persist, though. So you might see this very elongated um, recovery period here. Uh, I'm sympathetic to this idea that, oh, this is an unprecedented run-up in rents over this period as well, right? We had this huge spike, and maybe there is this lagged effect in terms of the CPI picking it up. My other theory, and I have no basis mm-hmm. to prove this, is that concessions may be uh, difficult to, to measure as well. So mm. a lot of the rent decreases we're seeing aren't actually marking down the monthly rent. It's just giving a, a month or two of free rent, hmm. right? So maybe the data doesn't really pick that up uh, properly. You're just seeing the the actual rental price, but it's not accounting for that discount. I don't know. Again, a pet theory. I don't know if that's... You're, we're not measuring the effective rent here. We're measuring the kind of the stated rent. Yeah. And I mean, survey even... data may not be... I think the yeah. question is to designed to try to capture yeah. that, but I, I worry right. that the methods may not be, or the responses may not actually be stating that. Or right. if there's an upgrade to the unit, right? How do you account for that? Or, you know, there are other concessions that might be out there that uh, aren't fully captured in the, potentially aren't fully captured in the survey. Right. I, I don't know. I'm a little bit. Yeah, I know you're stretching. But that's why, yeah, right. I, I, I'm trying to square the circle, right? Because you circle, do have... Yeah these market signals that are very strong and they're across all the surveys. It's not just one or two surveys. Every survey is saying, you know, rent growth has slowed uh, in terms of market rents. And then the CPI is saying something quite different. Could it be, and then we'll move on because I don't want to belabor the point, but could it be that we're seeing the weakness in rents in the high end of the rental market? That's where all the supply is, right? I mean, the affordable rental market's tight as a drum, there's just no space, uh, but in the higher end, we put up a lot of towers. These you know big towers in big urban areas, and so there's this really significant bifurcation in the rental market, and the BLS is not is maybe not picking up. It was more focused on the affordable part of the market and not picking up this weakness in rents at the high end. Does that resonate at all, Chris? It's possible, or that the possible. weighting between those weighting between different markets yeah. may not be. I mean, things have maybe shifting around quickly and right, uh, capturing it properly. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we need to do more work here. Marissa, anything you want to weigh in on this? This particular just, point. Yeah, I, I'll just say that um, I agree. This is this is not happening as quickly as we thought it would, but 
With regard to the December CPI report, if you dig into the details of the shelter numbers, um, rent for primary residents actually, growth in, in prices actually decelerated over the month. All of the acceleration in shelter prices was coming from hotels. So it was not OER oh, stayed that. the same. I missed yeah. that. I didn't miss that. Oh, interesting. OER was the okay. same as it had was in November, 0.5% month over month. Rent of primary residents actually decelerated over the month. So that tick up in shelter was just lodging away from home. Got it. Okay. That that that, <clears throat> that makes it it doesn't explain it completely, but it helps it make, yeah. it, make it less perplexing. Okay. It doesn't explain the longer trajectory, right, of of why isn't coming down faster, but right. it, it explains makes, December makes me feel a little better about the December. Report. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Sec so going back the second thing on the list of surprises, first, number one is the uh, cost of, uh, uh, of housing. The second is, it, this is me speaking, maybe I've got this wrong, but new vehicle prices. I thought new vehicle prices would decline. It feels like they're, they had started to roll over. I think they declined back in November feels like they're starting and, and everything suggests that they should because we're seeing improvements in global production inventories of cars on dealer lots is starting to rise i think it's at least back to what you would expect in the kind of a typical market and that all this would start to put downward pressure on new vehicle prices which went skyward during the pandemic during the shortages but we did not see that in the month of december um matt uh, anything any comments on that this I think is confounding as well. Used cars isn't uh, too different. I, I think they they kind of run in December. Both ran contrary to what you would expect. But for all those reasons you outlined, inventories rebuilding, incentives are on the rise. The, so I'm a car dealer. The, how I'm trying to get you to sell that car, I'm doing more and more to do that. Which uh, yeah, the intuition there is that that's working against the price, whether it's captured in. in uh, MSRP or not. Um, those are the kinds of things that happen when uh, uh, supply is is all caught up. So you would expect prices to go down. Perhaps there's a, there's some measurement seasonality post uh, pandemic stuff happening. Um, it, it's again, it, it's difficult to say. And I, I, again, I, I put out used cars. I think there's there's similar uh, head scratching things there, but both contributed to the core CPI going three-tenths of a percentage point as opposed to the, the two-tenths that, that we and, and consensus expected. But, but you're not changing your forecast. Do you still think new vehicle prices are going to come in as inventories continue to rise? I do. And I think um, the BLS just announced they're changing their methodology a little bit for for how they're calculating used vehicle prices. That's It's total speculation that that's because they're confused too. Um, but there is some weirdness there. Um that I think the fundamentals in, in again the inventory rebuild uh, being biggest the, the supply chain stuff they, they push prices up way up in 2021 2022 that stuff's behind us um, it's really hard to imagine why prices would not moderate. Got it, Marissa. Chris, anything on the new vehicle prices you want to mention or or used vehicle prices? I mean, I do think this is important not only because of car prices, but you know, new vehicle prices also impact the cost of maintenance, cost of car insurance, and these Thanks. things have risen very sharply as well. But anything else you'd like to add? No? Okay. No, I get worried then when we, when we start attributing yeah. to measurement, right? Yeah. Like, but, but I think right. it doesn't really but, fit. 
but that that you know generally i would agree but here we are we're debating you know to the second significant digit right yeah yeah i mean so when you're <laughs> when you're debating at the second when you're just trying to understand to the second significant digit then you got to get into the, i mean you got to get into yeah. the yeah the, the, fair, enough. fair enough yeah okay so the third on the list is the uh, electricity prices they jumped strongly and kind of the narrative i have in my mind there is that reflects the bump up in natural gas prices that occurred back over the last couple three months and uh you know we saw i think we were natural gas was closer to two dollars per million btu a few months ago now we're closer to the three still very low in the grand historical scheme of things but that bump up is what's reflected in that because uh, 60% of electricity generation, I'm making that number up, but roughly 60% of electricity generation in the US is natural gas powered. And that's what's behind this, which if that's the case, natural gas prices, I don't think are going anywhere. They're kind of roughly where they're going to be. We'll start to see electricity prices, uh, uh, the increase uh, start to moderate as well. Uh, Matt, what do you think? That's how I would characterize it. Um, prices started to come down in December and in uh risen a little bit in january but but that's kind of a month or two down the road uh problem i would say you're not going to have the same increase in in january cpi from electricity prices uh and and the rest of the components of energy motor gasoline uh relatively stable in recent weeks um some some geopolitical challenges there but but have so far not proven uh to be a meaningful uh, impact uh, but but that's the your read is, is is how I see it as well. Okay, Chris, Marissa, anything on that one on uh, electricity prices? No. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, we're we're now really descending into the weeds <laughs> into the weeds. Okay, uh, it, uh, I want to ask you about what happened in is happening over in the Middle East around uh, the Houthi attack. But before I do that, and what that might mean for uh, inflation here, if anything. But before I do that, Matt. Is there anything on that list that should be that that I, that I didn't mention that contributed meaningfully to the miss in terms of inflation coming in a little hotter than anticipated? Did I miss anything? No, and and I guess maybe rank ordering the vehicle, uh, misjudging the vehicle prices trends, I, I think is really interesting and, and consequential, but. Shelter's massively important as well, but oh, so um, you would have said vehicle miss was number one. Not number um, one. as I say that, I think the weight that shelter has in CPI, so it would be difficult to to say that yeah. anything could be more important if, if yeah. there's a if okay. there's a gap there. But but yeah, vehicle yeah. prices are are really interesting and uh, potentially something could okay. change the next few months. Okay, so the Houthi attack on shipping in the Red Sea, and of course the U.S., U.K., and allies have responded, uh, and that's. Uh, creating a fair amount of angst that that's going to, because uh, of the disruption and the added cost of avoiding the Red Sea uh, as ships go around uh, 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 South Africa. Uh, is this, how big a deal is this uh, in terms of what it means for inflation here back in the United States? Uh, Matt, do you have a view on that? Primary channel in the U.S. for sure was always going to be in energy markets, uh, not the only channel, but the primary channel. And um, so mid-December, you have these announcements that commercial cargo is, is starting to reroute away from the Suez Canal. Insurance costs have gone up really high. It just wasn't uh, practical to, to ship through there anymore. But there wasn't a, a huge run up in, in oil prices and certainly nothing 
showing up in uh, December CPI report as we wouldn't have expected it to. But moving forward, um, I, I think it's it's a marginal uh, effect. I think the U.S. is a little better insulated than, say, Europe and Asia, just based off the uh, way that we get our goods compared to the Eurasian continent. Um, it's just too small share of goods for the U.S., so not expecting to see any kind of goods inflation returning as if this were anything reminiscent of the 2021 supply chain issues, um, again, on the margins. And there's a few reasons for that that, that we can d- discuss. Some of it comes from the pandemic. There's investments in, in adaptability um, to, to kind of make your business's supplier network a little bit more resilient. Um, the increase in container ship capacity, to, which was a binding constraint in 2021, 2022. The, those things are uh, less of an issue now and, and should should uh, make the, the, the run up in prices uh, kind of a little less dramatic if this were to be a protracted and, and you know, uh, disruptive affair. Yeah, I suppose you can construct darker scenarios where every all, all the ship shipping through the Red Sea is shut down and Iran's engulfed in the conflict and their oil is disrupted and so forth and so on. But you got to you got to think that this is going to bleed out in a much more significant way before it does a lot of damage. Chris, uh, Marissa, do you have any different perspective on that? I mean, is that consistent with your views as well? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of on yeah. the margin. Okay. Okay. So bottom line. Uh, it feels like, yeah, I wish the inflation report was a little bit better than it was, but it wasn't that bad. It was kind of close, a little hotter than expected, but it doesn't change anybody's forecast. Inflation feels like it's coming in uh, uh, to uh, inconsistent with kind of a soft landing. Is that kind of roughly right? Anyone disagree with that kind of characterization? Chris, any, any pushback on that? Not real pushback. I guess um, as we think about Fed policy, I mean, March... Seems a little less likely now in terms of a, a first cut, uh, given this report, but you know, it's still early days here. Yeah. I saw it today because uh, the PPI, the producer price index came out today. CPI came out on Thursday, PPI today. That was surprisingly soft. Negative. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I saw the uh, futures markets for the March, uh, what's the probability of a March rate cut? And it's now eighty over eighty percent. That that not that that's right or that's what's going to happen, but that's market expectation. So yeah, kind of kind of moving in that direction. Okay, uh, I think we're going to end the conversation there around the inflation report and uh, turn to the topic at hand, and that's cyber risk and uh, what it means for the financial system and the economy. And let's welcome our star-studded cast to, of, of folks to talk about cyber cyber risk and what it means for the economy and. Let me begin with uh, you, Joe. Joe Lyons, good to see you. Hi. And you're with BitSight. Yeah, I'm, I'm with BitSight. Currently, uh, I'm a senior director at BitSight, focusing on the application of cybersecurity data into financial models. And before BitSight, I understand you were a, a Moody's employee. You were a so-called uh, ethical hacker. So you're trying to hack in to figure out where our vulnerabilities were at Moody's. In. Yeah, exactly. So before BitSight, uh, I spent a number of years as a cybersecurity practitioner, both on the offensive and defensive side uh, of security. Most recent stint uh, was at Moody's as an offensive security person uh, attempting to hack Moody's on behalf of Moody's to to make sure that Moody's was secure. Joe, did you ever try to hack me? I'm just asking. Um, not not that I'd tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> but somebody uh, did hack your Twitter, Mark. Maybe it was Joe, right? It could have been. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, but Twitter's going, you know, in a pretty tough direction here. I'm getting 
there's doppelgangers all over the place apparently. Yeah. So very difficult to control. But it's good to have you, Joe. Thanks for for coming on. And we've got Jill Satina. Jill, good to see you. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And Jill is uh, with us at Moody's, but you came from the Federal Reserve System. Is that you were there before you came here? That yes, right? that's right. I um I had worked uh, at the Fed as a vice president in supervision most recently before I joined Moody's. Um, also spent some time at the OCC, which is one of the other federal banking regulators, and also the Office of Financial Research, uh, which is tasked with thinking about financial stability risk. And I think of you as all things banking, all things financial system, uh, but cyber is what kind of a, a sideline, or is that a major part of what you're doing? Uh, well, um. A bit you less- know everything about everything that you want to know about the finance. In fact, I got a gazillion questions about the financial system, but that's for another podcast. But okay, well, I look forward to that, Mark. Now, um, so just uh, to take a step back, um, I had uh, the group at the Office of Financial Research that did research on cyber and financial stability when I was there. Um- and then also um, when I was at the in the Fed in the Dallas Fed, um, I had responsibility for IT cyber supervision. That was for about four years. So. I- Thought about the topic uh, a bit in both of those contexts. Well, good to have you on board. And Leslie Ritter, Leslie, uh, you are definitely all things cyber, right? At Moody's. I am Uh, all things cyber, all things credit rating agency, I believe. uh, So in uh, cyber that you do in the rating agency, you're kind of involved with all of that. Yeah. So so we stood up a a, uh, cyber credit risk team, as we call it, about four years ago, looking to think about how cyber impacts credit. And that's, uh, that's where I sit. Yeah. And, and this uh, Jim Hempstead, he, he, is he in your world? I mean, uh, he, he's. Yeah. So he used to be part of our world and now yeah. he, he, he's moved on to, to bigger or bigger mandates. And Got so it. Uh, I come and try to fill his shoes. Got it. Got it. Well, it's good to have you on board. And we've got uh, two of our own, uh, Jess, Jesse Rogers and Matt. Oh gosh. Collier. Collier. Close enough. Yeah. <sighs> no, I got that wrong. What is it? Call. Collier. Collier, yeah. Collier. Uh, so you know, the, here's the weird thing. Matt, how, Matt, how long have you been with us, Matt? Four years. Four years. In four years, he's never tried to correct me when I call him Collier. <laughs> so what, what was the catalyst for saying, hey, guys, you're mispronouncing my last name? What what, what was the I don't straw? Know. I, I don't correct people often. Everyone gets it wrong. I think it's spelled wrong, my last name, but I can't change it oh. at this point. So uh, I don't It is spelled wrong. You're right. I think so. The why catches everybody's eye and they get hung up on it. But yeah, uh, hey, I don't know. I just thought yeah. maybe it's it's time to correct. It's it. time, time yeah. to do that. And, and what nationality is that? I believe English. English. There's some okay ties there, but not. Well, I, I, that wasn't a trick question. I thought you would know yeah, the answer. To that. I, I, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I think English. We'll go with that. Western uh, okay. okay, we got Jesse. Hey, Jesse. Good to see you. Hey, man. Mark. Good afternoon. It's. Oh, that is good afternoon. And you're uh, you're headed to Mexico City pretty soon for us, right? You're going to be managing operations down there. That's right. It's like yeah. like a jet setter in one direction. Yeah. Well, and Matt and Jesse just uh, finished a piece on uh, uh, cyber in the financial system and trying to assess out the impact on the economy. We'll definitely come back to that. But I thought maybe we can begin the conversation with you, Leslie. I, you know, good timing, right? Because you guys just, uh, you, the rating agencies, just came out with a, uh, a good uh, piece on the outlook for cyber for 2024. So maybe I can just kind of turn it to you and what'd you find? Yeah, sure. It's, it's perfect timing, fresh, uh, hot off the presses. On, on Wednesday, we published our 
fourth now uh, Cyber Outlook for this is for 2024, of course, and it's it's on it's on the, it's on the website if anybody's interested. Um, we found a lot of things, but I think I want I want to kind of focus in on on three key points. Uh, the first one is that you know the, the the cyber risk landscape is really about to undergo some very important changes driven by transformative transformative technological advancements. By that I mean Gen AI and quantum computing is also starting to rear it, it, its head there. And if you think about these changes happening, they're also happening against the backdrop of very challenging macroeconomic environments, right? Which are putting some downward pressure on cyber budgets. So what we're closely watching is how are our companies that we rate balancing these two, right? On one side, you have heightened demand for capital to invest in cyber because Gen AI and quantum are going to introduce more cyber risk. And on the other side of the, uh, of the equation, you have you know more expected, more limited capital to be allocated to cyber. It'd be the first time we see a reduction in capital potentially uh, going towards cyber. Over the past five years, when we, we just completed a survey, we saw about a 70% increase in cyber budgets over the past five years. And now we're seeing kind of this dipping down. It's big that doesn't change. sound like a lot, 7%? I mean, 70, uh, 7-0. Oh, 70. Okay, 70 that sounds like a lot. Yeah, That, that okay. sounds like a lot, right? <laughs> so, so, so how are these two kind of competing trends going to be balanced? And they could lead to some very difficult decisions, right? That could have very long-term competitive implications for, for the companies that we, we look, look, uh, look at. The, the second point that we, we highlighted, and I think Jill will have a lot to say on that, is uh, uh, is about what's happening in the, the regulatory arena, right? Mm. There's a number of pretty ambitious cyber regulations that have just gone or are about to go into effect. And here I'm really thinking about the SEC cyber disclosure rules that uh, went into effect in December of 2023, so just a few weeks ago. And the other one is the DORA regulations that applies to... Um, the European banking or financial services system that is still being finalized, but it's going to be going into effect in, in January of 2025. Here's a test. DORA means what Dora? is oh, this the, an acronym for? It, it stands for the Ah, you're searching. You don't, oh, I got you. Digital operational risk uh, something. Assessment. No? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but but at at um at the core of it, both of them are trying to do very important work. They're trying to introduce more transparency and more structure in terms of how companies are impacted uh, and how they mitigate against cyber risk. And so, from a credit standpoint, obviously, we see that really positively. At the same time, we have to to recognize that implementing and adhering to these regulations are going is going to be difficult because there's a lot of room for interpretation. And there's a lot of potential uh, pitfalls that come with that, disclosing mm -hmm. more information that you want that could potentially exploit it by cyber attackers, right? So this is a, a new area to watch. And uh, we're it's starting with some of the big sectors when we think it's going to spread to other sectors over time. And you, and you said th three. I, that was, I counted two. That's two. Yeah, the last right. one. And I have to end on a positive because there's so yeah. much doom and gloom with cyber typically that has to do with what's happening in the uh cyber insurance space and uh, here finally after years of very steep increases in, in the cost of cyber insurance premiums think 300 percent in some cases those prices are finally kind of leveling off and stabilizing and that's really good because companies are very eager to carry cyber insurance <laughs> and it was becoming 
exceedingly costly for them to carry it. But now that the prices are stabilizing, they can access it again. And actually even companies that weren't able to enter the market before and now are able to uh, to buy those kinds of, uh, of cyber insurance policies. And this is particularly helpful to small and medium-sized companies that often see cyber, cyber insurance as kind of their first line of defense in terms of, of cyber risk management. So Leslie, th- I, I, uh, I haven't had a chance to read the uh, piece in its totality, but like most people, I think I'm not weird in any way. I go right to the charts. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the charts that struck me was, it looks like the number of cyber attacks is down. Is that right? I mean, it built like a peak back when, 2020, 2021? Or am I, did I misread that? Or what's going on there? Yeah, and I think, uh, Joe, feel free to chime in here because I'm sure you'll have a lot to say there too. In 2022, we, we saw them come down and that was really more tied to the fact that some of the very active uh, attackers were disbanded through some different, uh, you know, uh, governmental operations let's put it this way oh wait can you then, say that again i admit you were oh so so a lot of the the uh very prolific attackers prolific attackers in okay. 2022 were disbanded Dis- oh. Some, oh, okay uh, covert these are state actors that disbanded uh loosely affiliated state actors let's put it that way okay now you're being a little coy but tell us why you're being coy because we're we're not into the business of attribution or okay. talking about where they're coming from. That's yeah. why uh, I, it it doesn't really uh, have any bearing on our on our analysis. Got it. Got but it. to answer your question, I have to highlight the fact that you know there were there were groups, very active groups that were disbanded. So if I, if we were out at a bar and you had had a cocktail or two and we're just talking, you would you would tell me who you think this is, but you're not going to tell me. Yeah. On this podcast, who you think is you can very easily Google it, but I'm not going to say it. Easily that. Google it, okay. All right. uh, but post 2020, now Joe, Joe would spill his is going to spill the beans right away. <laughs> attribution you know? for me, I'm trying no, to. Say no, 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 you're no attribute. You don't attribute either. Okay, not, I know nothing. <laughs> you know nothing. <laughs> right. But I think what's interesting is these players they didn't disappear, so they regrouped and they got back together. And in 2023, we started to see an uptick in attacks uh, as well. That's okay. why the chart you see look, is, is a bit misleading. So attacks for 2023, I think we haven't finished kind of uh, tabulating them, but uh, they're up from 2022. And Got just it. anecdotally, if you look at what's happening in the news, I mean, especially the past few months has been kind of relentless. Every other day is another big company disclosing some kind of ransomware attack or data breach. So it has so- not slowed down. So, so cyber is not becoming less of an issue. It's it's becoming steadily more of an issue. It's and it's and the, all the trend lines here look, I guess, pretty scary. Uh, is I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I know rating agencies are you guys there. You're kind of cautious in how you say it, but you know we we should be worried about this. Is what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, if you think of yes, because think about yeah. what's happening the, with the, the trends in technology and digitization and Gen AI. This is yep. all introducing more of a, a growing the digital footprint that can be exploited, right, by attackers. Got it. So unless it's properly secured, it will be exploited. Yeah. Well, no, I'm gonna, sorry, go ahead, sorry. Jill. Go yeah. Ahead. No, I was going to just say, like the to another way of thinking about what Leslie's saying is the attack surface is just it gets bigger every year. And then also, I think companies also face pressure to innovate um, around some of these new technologies. And, um, you know, innovation, of course, can be very positive. But if, um, you know, you bring the risk 
you know, bringing the cyber risk in at the back end after you've done the innovation then becomes costly um, to remediate as opposed to starting with, um, you know, managing cyber risk as a first principle in mind. I don't so know, are, you, are you talking, Jill, about like AI and qu- uh, quantum computing as innovation? And because companies are all in on that, they're kind of diving ahead that they're exposing themselves to increase cyber risk. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah, that or yeah. having a fintech partner. Um, oh, I see. You know, and yeah. you know, you you open up a system between you and your some of your fintech partners. Um, you know, things like that can again, if you if you start first with the innovation and don't have the risk management as a piece at the front end of the project, then you got to remediate it on the back end and it becomes costly. But, you know, that's just my perspective on things. Mm -hmm. Hey, let's talk about AI because that come on the scene here very quickly. And I know, Joe, you've done a fair amount of work trying to understand, is AI a plus or a negative when it comes to cyber and how that's all going to play out here going forward? I mean, here's some pretty dark... Yeah, it's a good question, right? I, I think it remains to be seen. I, you know, the reality is when we start out, I think that AI will generally be a negative for cybersecurity. And I say that only because organizations are a little bit slower to move. There's a lot more governance. There's a lot more things to change around an organization than there is around uh, cyber criminals, right? Cyber criminals can run fast and as, as fast as they want with no regulation and try things a million times. And you know, the reality is, especially with generative AI, we've, we've seen this with things like deepfake and, and chat GPT, it's extremely easy to impersonate people and extremely easy um, to, to both fish people and to generate new attacks from AI. And, you know, just to, to, to take one point back from, you know, the, the attack trend, if you think about the digitization in 2021 and why it peaked and kind of dropped off a bit, in my opinion, a little bit is due to the hyper-digitization that happened during COVID. If you, if you take a step back and you think about what happened during that time period, every single business in the world basically went hyper-digital overnight because they had to, to keep businesses moving forward, right? So there's two things that go into it. There is cyber is always a lagging indicator, right? It, it takes a while for companies to know they are hacked and it takes them even longer to admit they're hacked and to, to actually go from being hacked to the regulation around it to being picked up in either a FOIA request or somewhere else where you're going to get that data back from, it's usually a pretty long lagging indicator. So, you know, like not dissimilar to the S&P 500 where everyone says like, oh, like zoom out, you're having it down, you're like zoom out, you'll see it's going up over time. I think in 2030, we're going to look back at 2022 and see it's like probably just in line with 2021 and continue to uptick. And I think, you know, bringing that back to generative AI, I think that hyperdigitization is not going anywhere. And with hyperdigitization comes more risk. The reality is cybersecurity lags behind governance in a lot of different ways. And, and one of the ways is businesses want to solve problems very fast. So they'll, they'll use a ton of cybersecurity mechanisms to do that uh, without necessarily understanding the full risk implications of that. It's, it's, you know, it's make the money and figure out the risk around it after. So um, from the offensive perspective, as a practitioner, I'm nervous, right, about generative AI and AI insecurity. And the reason being is, and I'm saying this as a practitioner and and with a lot of experience in in phishing emails, and people are the weak link when it comes to cybersecurity. It's usually the person who ends up- You know, like, that, I say that yeah. about Chris all the time. <laughs> he's definitely the weak link here on this whole phishing so, thing. Yes. Yeah, so, and, so, and he's so big into crypto too. He's, he's huge into <laughs> crypto. And at the same time, you know, 
he gets captured by these fishing things all the time. We gotta we gotta watch that guy very carefully. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what can know, I say? What can I say? <laughs> imagine a higher volume and more specific. Oh, you, you say imagine more Chris's? Is that what you're saying to me? Well, imagine imagine pandering directly to Chris's Chris's emotions, right? You can quantify oh, what Chris is interested definitely in. Definitely don't want to do that. Create a model around that and then fire an email that directly plays off his emotion. So like that's realistically the, the lowest barrier to entry for cyber criminals is going to be in that area. What, how do people speak? What is their tone like when they write emails, right? Let, let's say I, I'm writing an email impersonating Mark Zandi. I'll go through all of your, your publications. I'll go through all of your interviews yeah. and I will watch that with a learning model and then yeah. create the model to speak and use the same exact tone and vernacular and yeah. terms that you will and then send emails out to everybody as a impersonating Mark's Andy. And it's going to be- I, I'm of the view no machine can it can impersonate me. There's like no possible way. We, AI we, can. I, I certainly- AI guy. Oh, AI can. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so that- so Is that a challenge, Mark? <laughs> did, you no, just, no. did you just send Please, that out no. to the universe? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, so a good example of how AI could really be a problem- is just on fishing, just designing the the, the hook in yeah. such a way that it's so shiny and bright and enticing. Yeah. There's no way I'm not going to bite on that thing. It's it's not dissimilar to how uh, advertising, especially on social media, is amazing at pandering to your emotion. And there's a reason why you continually click back. AI will be able to do that with phishing emails. And, and the, the reality is it's going to exacerbate this concept of a cyber poverty gap, right? You're going to have the well-funded and, and and cutting edge engineering groups in defense that will use AI for the best possible use cases. They'll they'll make their own operations operate with a higher margin. It's it's the the mid to lower tiers that are going to be really adversely affected by it because they're going to not have enough money to buy the products that are that are created out of AI, and they're also not going to have the, the the talent pull right to to pull the talented to defend against AI. So I, I think it's going to end up polarizing the cyber market to start off with. And then I think as it becomes more and more commodity, defense will catch up and and then that will be the next step in the in the arms race. Hmm. But do you think, I mean, I was reading your interview, you did you did an interview back in the fall on this issue with uh, some folks from the rating agency. It, you you kind of landed in a, in a more negative spot, meaning there's, you know, pluses, there's minuses, but on the net of all of this, it feels like it's a net negative. I think those are the, that's exactly the terms you used. I think that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. At, at least, you know, I would, I would say at least for five to 10 years, I think the reality is oh, okay. fast and hard on this and right. it's going to take a long time for organizations to implement countermeasures to, to understand, you know, not only does the technology need to exist to understand when something is generated by AI from an attack perspective, but then you have to go about defending against it with an organization. And, um, you know, again, the reality is people are the weak link. People click things, people are tricked fairly easily when it comes to phishing emails. So putting data behind that is kind of a, a, a terrifying concept out of the gate. I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, organizations will defend against it, but it's going to be a, a lag from my perspective. In, in uh, of course, it's not only AI; it's it's quantum computing too, right? I mean, just yes. the, you don't do you want to explain that briefly? You know what that's all yeah, about? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, so the 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 crux of the problem with quantum com computing is encryption algorithms. Uh, there's this there's this algorithm called the Shor's algorithm, which is a a method for doing prime factorials. That once quantum computing gets to a stable enough state 
that algorithm will be implemented and all encryption as we know it today will be broken pretty much instantaneously. The algorithm's already written. It's just a it's just a fact of getting it into a quantum computer now. So there's a bit of a frenzy right now, you know, across all of technology to understand how to make quantum resistant encryption technologies. And maybe a light definition of what encryption technologies are. It is the way that you keep information that is on the wire secret. So it, it is the the secret language that you speak between between two organizations to make sure that your data is not uh, sniffed by anybody, to not viewed by anybody. So it's it's really important. Uh, and the 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 area in everybody's life where you'll know where encryption is is you look at the top left of your browser and you see that little lock hmm. HTTPS at the end of the URL. That means that all of your inf- your communications are encrypted. So everything is secret. Hmm. Um, the risk is that that secret handshake is then broken, uh, leading to realistically, you know, kind of a, a wide systemic security problem. Hmm. Well, uh, I hope you're a shareholder in BitSight. Uh, it sounds like you're going to do really, really well here going forward. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that maybe you are. Yeah. You look how well dressed he is, guys. I mean, look at that. I mean, I come from financial services. I can't wear the T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So, uh, let's move forward. And, you know, I've, uh, been, I'm a, we're economists and we've been asked often about cyber and the economy, you know, uh, what is the potential macroeconomic consequence of cyber attacks? And I've always had a hard time with this one. I mean, coming up with scenarios where cyber could, you know, take out if not the entire economy, big parts of the economy. I mean, we have attacks like the colonial pipeline and that's very disruptive, but so far there's not been anything that's kind of shut things down in, in a you know uh, significant way, at least not here in the United States. There's examples, I think, Ukrainian, some other examples, but as far as I know. But uh, one area where I think there is, it become, I've come to appreciate real risk is in the financial system. And uh, we saw that uh, come home clearly recently with the hack of ICBC. Uh, and I thought, Jill, you wrote a great piece about that hack. And maybe you can describe what that's all about and, you know, what, what it means, you know, from uh, from your perspective. Yeah, no, there were just um, thanks. Thanks, Mark. Uh, there was uh, in the um, U.S. operation of ICBC and affiliate that um faced some cyber challenges and they were um, very important in terms of uh, basically for ICBC um, conducting repo transactions um, in the treasury market. And um, the challenges, the cyber challenges that they faced, um, you know, did uh, create um, a meaningful spike in failed trades for a day or two um, while that was worked out. And, you know, as you I know you know well, um, you know, the repo market uh, plays a very important intermediation role between financial institutions um, and fixed income markets, particularly the treasury market. So um, that was a bit disconcerting, um, you know, uh, when it first kind of came out. Of course, um, you know, there are some tools that the official sector has, like extending the Fedwire um, uh, operating day um, to give a little bit more time for settlement. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, you know, there are, and I, I think your paper that some of the people on your team have worked on, um, you know, thinks about uh, that there's different ways in which cyber can become, I'll call it a financial stability risk, 
One is if you, um, you know, maybe have contagion um, from a cyber event. The other is, of course, if you hit um, someone who's kind of from a network perspective, a bit like a spoke. And then, you know, you have contagion kind of radiate out from there. Um, you can have a, a different kind of contagion, which is more like um, maybe a confidence-related contagion where you have some, a cyber event that affects a, a certain type of business model. And then other types of contagion kind of spread from there um, in financial institutions. So um, so that's sort of ICBC um, at a very- ICBC, level. just what kind of caught my eye is it's the largest bank in the world, right? Uh, Correct. Just, this is the Chinese bank. ICBC is what, uh, in, what do you, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but. Uh, uh, Industrial you, and Commercial Bank of China. Bank make a China, the largest in the world. And, uh, you know, it, it was a, it's a small affiliate that mm-hmm. got hacked, but it, it led to some significant disruptions. And I, I think the send certainly should send off some, some yellow flares. I mean, in terms of what that means. Uh, well, I think, I think there's, um, you know, certainly been some other incidents uh, in the financial sector or in mm-hmm. service providers to the financial sector. I think mm-hmm. there's a couple channels through which financial institutions can experience cyber stress. So one is directly themselves in their own systems. Um, you know, Joe made the great point about, um, you know, somebody at a bank or a non-bank financial institution getting a, I'll call it a, an email that's a phishing email. And that's kind of direct on on the financial institution. But then financial institutions, as Leslie pointed out, have many um, IT service providers that they utilize. And um, I think we've seen instances, I'll I'll just point to SolarWinds and some others, um, where uh, Citrix Bleed is another, you know, different things like that, where um, a a service provider is the the channel through which um, there becomes a cyber incident at a financial institution. And then the third third channel um, is really on the asset side for a financial institution where We've only seen a very limited amount of this, but there's a very nice paper on um, the malware attack, uh, the NotPetya attack, mm-hmm. that sort of shows that um, there, this is done by some of my colleagues uh, at the Fed, uh, that sort of illustrates that um, some of the, the uh, institutions that banks were lending to were negatively affected by NotPetya and talks a bit about um, how that could have created credit stress um, had the malware associated with that cyber attack actually proven catastrophic for some of those corporates that they were lending to. So there's multiple channels, uh, if you're a financial institution, unfortunately, through which cyber risk can affect you. Um, but yeah, that's I, ICBC, it was, it you know, again, attribution's hard. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it would just kind of maybe not try to attribute or, or, mm-hmm. or talk through um, which of the channels. Mm-hmm. Get yeah, before we kind of dig even deeper into cyber and the financial system, and we'll turn to Jesse and Matt's work shortly, maybe Leslie, I'll turn it back to you and maybe Joe, um, you know, my thought as I articulated was that the, and I'm asking you to put on your economist hat now, if, if you're willing to do that for a second, my thought is that the most likely cyber scenario that would have macroeconomic implication would be one where it has a major effect on the financial system. 
you know, something broad. I mean, you, uh, Jill mentioned the potential for contagion or it affects, you know, some something deep in the plumbing of the financial system, uh, trading. They mentioned the repo market or the the Fed wire, or, you know, so, something that's kind of critical to the plumbing in the system and the movement of liquidity around the system. Is, is that when you think about the the kind of the panoply of risks here? Do you, would you put that at kind of at the top of the list of concerns, or is there other kind of vulnerabilities in other industries and other parts of the economy that you think might be more of a threat to the macro economy? I, I, that's, I know that's, a, that's probably an unfair question. I'm asking you to do my job, but maybe you could, maybe you could do that. Leslie, do you have a view? You mean other industries that could, that are as critical as yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought you know, like for example, I, I've thought about the ports. You know, maybe a hack of the ports. I've thought about the electric grid. Maybe, a, 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 mm-hmm. but I still have a hard time connecting the dots between those things in a macroeconomic event. On the financial system, I can connect the dots, but on the other, the others, I can't. But I'm just asking you. Am I missing something? Is there something else out there that we should be focused on or thinking about? Is, I know it's an open-ended question. And maybe there's no answer, but what, what do you think, Leslie? So, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think CISA, has, CISA is the uh, body that oversees cybersecurity in the U.S. I think they have 16 critical uh, sectors for cybersecurity. So I think their view is any of these sectors are critical to the functioning of the broader economy of, of the U.S. So a, a cyber impact on a, 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 a system-wide so a cyber impact on any of these industries would probably have a similar impact. I think you have to think about the fact that these critical sectors that span the healthcare sectors to the energy to food and agriculture are all heavily digitized. Every industry is sort of a tech company in some sort of way right now, right? Um, and another thing that's happening is a lot of these industries are used to operate very bespoke equipment. So the contagion risk was less there, but looking to uh, the electric utility space, for instance, there's a shift, right, in where your electricity is coming from. It's very distributed and it's coming from a few manufacturers, right? So you go from these centralized uh, power generation centers, which are very bespoke, and so an infection one wouldn't wouldn't spread to others to a, a situation where you have a very distributed and homogenous type of equipment. So if one of the pieces of the equipment is tampered with, all of them are likely tampered with, and that spreads very easily. And that's true in electricity uh, utility space. Very likely true in other uh, sectors as well. Hmm. Joe, do you have a perspective on that or a view? Yeah. Um... You know, I, when I think about this, I, I think about like the, the concept of magnitudes of change and and where risk is concentrated. So why is the finance sector like kind of low-hanging fruit for this? It's because like everything is run through a central plumbing system. There's an aggregation point. It's a very easy place to attack. When, when you're talking about systemic cyber attacks, it's very hard to do a bespoke attack on every single type of organization. So what comes to mind for me, honestly, and it's well offset with technology expertise with good reason is is the large technology companies. If you think about how many businesses are dependent on centralized cloud infrastructure across three major companies, Mm. uh, if there's any disruption at scale at any of those three major companies, it's going to adversely affect a massive part of the economy, Mm. both from a consumer perspective and a business operations perspective. So then it becomes a question of like, not only 
is, is the magnitude. You're talking like an AWS or an, I mean, an AWS yeah, and Azure. Azure, Azure yep, yeah. Exactly. Right. So any, any of these areas where there's a hyper concentration of technology, there's also a hyper concentration of systemic risk, right? And, mm. and that's where the magnitude of change from an attacker perspective becomes very immense, right? And and I'm not saying this is necessarily low hanging fruit. This would be an extremely complex attack. And I'm sure all of these companies have a ton of security around this, but if anyone were able to get into the infrastructure, the backbone of how these cloud organizations operate, it would probably have the most impact out of any of the sectors because it would impact every one of the sectors because each sector leverages centralized cloud computing more than sure. anything. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, hey, Jill, uh, turning back to you and back to the financial system, I, I know obviously regulators, global regulators are all over this. You 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 want to spend a few minutes and describe kind of some of the kind of things that regulators are doing or certainly now starting to come through to fruition and, and how effective you think those will be? Sure. I mean, there's a lot to talk about here, Mark, and some things yeah. are kind of uh, further in train maybe than others. So maybe just jumping back for a minute on um, quantum, uh, the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, which is sort of like the central bank to central banks, mm -hmm. um, did release a paper today um, talking about how they are concerned about um, what Joe alluded to, which is the potential for quantum computing to um, render current encryption technology obsolete and that to become a financial stability risk, for lack of a better word. Um, and they talked about um, some work that they are doing um, at a very technical level to think about uh, the transition from current encryption technology to um, maybe kind of a post-quantum technology. Uh, they're doing that work with Banque de France and, um, the, and the Bundesbank. Uh, I believe it was what the paper said. So thinking first about central bank systems, but maybe trying to create a bit of a roadmap for financial institutions. Um, so I think that's really um, important work. Um, in uh, the EU, um, Leslie referred to uh, DORA already, and this is, um, Quick you know- test, what does that stand for? <laughs> I, I would say, I don't know either. Um, cause I'm, I'm, you know, more focused on us regulation, uh, than I am, um, gotcha. on yeah. EU, but, uh, if Leslie, I don't know if you came up with it in the interim. The A was act. That's the one word that, that was the one letter. Uh, oh, act. Yeah, right. act. Yeah, right. The most obvious one, right? Yeah. There we so. go. There we go. We figured it out. Okay. So Dora, it's not Dora the Explorer. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. So anyway, um, so Dora um, is kind of interesting to contrast a little bit and given Joe's comment about how service providers are um, potentially, you know, significant service providers are, are potentially uh, such a high systemic risk for the economy writ large. Um, well, Dora, uh, as I understand it, and Leslie can, can step in and correct me, but um, is requiring financial institutions to provide comprehensive lists of all their service providers. And then they're going to take a risk-focused approach in the EU to saying, aha, I've got all these lists and I'm going to uh, you know, do you know, supervision on those most significant service providers. Um, and that's, um, I think sounds like a great approach um, to this topic. Now in the US, um, people may or may not be um, as familiar with where we are um, from a regulatory viewpoint. Uh, there's a old banking act called Gramm-Leach-Bliley. I won't go, I could have said GLIBA, but I, I won't do that to, to folks. Oh, I, I didn't know, I always said GLB, is GLIBA? 
I really yeah, some people some people you... say gliba. It's uh you know there it's like one of those yeah. acronyms mark like tomato tomato, yeah. FFA, FHFA, you know. Yeah, yeah. People people have different the flubs, the FHLB, yeah. yeah. Got it. Yeah. Right. So anyway, you, you um, weirdos but, in the financial system. That's yeah. right, right, yeah. right, right. You know, so anyway, Graham Leach Bliley um though does give uh US bank regulators the ability to supervise service providers of uh banks. Um, but one of the challenges, because Graham Leach Bliley, I think as many know, is uh, not recent legislation. Um, it, it it doesn't give quite the same level of, um, I'll call it data collection, around these um, uh, service providers. And mm-hmm. so, you know, regulators have approaches um, to gathering these data. But if you were to try to find... Um, and again, people who are regulatory nerds in the U.S. are well familiar with that any regulation has to go through notice and comment. Um, there's a Paperwork Reduction Act type thing. There is no regulatory filing that is systematic where banks are reporting. You know, Joe might report um, a service provider written out one way. Leslie might report it another, collating that mm. and getting to an efficient uh, portfolio of which service providers should be um, overseen in the U.S., I think is a bit of a data challenge um, from a regulation supervision viewpoint. So we do have service provider supervision. Um, you can't uh, find a list of which service providers are currently being overseen. Um, that's not publicly um, available information. Um, and it's it's an area of supervision that um, all of the banking regulators, the federal banking regulators, and and some of the state regulators are involved in. Um, but there's not um, perhaps as much uh, information about it. Maybe the one other point that I would make is, as you know, Mark, the um, U.S. financial sector has a lot of non-bank um, financial institutions in it, and uh, the bank regulators, of course, you know. In, in some a number of cases, do not oversee them. So think about like non-bank mortgage servicers, where we've had some recent um, notable cybersecurity events. Those are not overseen in any way by the federal banking regulators. So that service provider oversight isn't happening in the same way for the non-bank financial sector as it does for um, vendors of banks. Um, and that is something that... Uh, you know, given the discussion we've had so far is arguably a bit of a gap. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We also mm-hmm. have the ECB um, just to kind of round out, you know, yeah, they right. announced their stress test. They have, um, it's like every other year they do kind of a neat um, little, let's, let's kind of pursue a bespoke stress test that's different than what they traditionally do. I think in 2017, they did interest rate risk. That was yep. <laughs> had some force right there. That's oh, pressure, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done market and liquidity. Um, and they just recently announced that they're going to do um, cyber. Climate. climate was Yeah, they one. did climate. Yeah. Yep. And doing cyber um, next. And, uh, you know, I think I think that's, that's a positive um, for European financial institutions. Again, these aren't setting capital standards, but I think just having those kinds of, I'll call it tabletop exercises, um, that are, you know, focused regulatory events can be, can help people up their game. Yeah. And that's the, I, I agree. And I think that this is a good segue into the work that uh, Jesse and Matt have uh, done 
and uh because it's kind of like a stress test we we kind of we took a, a couple of scenarios uh, that uh, cyber uh, attacks to the financial system and ran that through our models and tried to figure out what the macroeconomic impacts would be and uh maybe uh, jesse matt who who would like to describe the work uh spend a few minutes and just kind of lay that out for us and there's a there is a white paper uh it's available and you know if folks are interested we can provide that to you and uh i think we're doing a webinar too aren't we uh, jesse at some point here matt yeah uh, i think in early february okay yeah. good february yeah browser. so jesse matt one of you sure. want to take the com here and explain what you did yeah i'll take a stab and matt i'll i'll pause here and there um, so you can chip in and, and round it out. I think the interesting thing about our paper, um, and you alluded it to it before, Mark, is kind of trying to take you know cyber risk, which which largely um, you know for companies is business risk or operational risk, and trying to figure out how does that become macro risk. And um, you know, so we took a look at the financial system where the linkages just seem more concrete or, or the, um, you know, the potential for systemic uh, damage is just a little bit easier to imagine. Um, and we came up with two scenarios. The first we're calling a cyber deposit run, um, which is a bank run or a banking panic that begins with successive cyber attacks on smaller and medium-sized banks um, and uh, in this scenario, we um, consumers or, or depositors rather flee to the perceived stability of larger banks. Uh, and it's kind of it's it's very similar to the situation that we saw in March of last year, but on a much larger scale. Um, and it it puts the Fed in a unique situation because what we ultimately have is a, a liquidity insolvency crisis that is you know, operational in nature. It's not something the Fed is really designed to to solve. You know, providing liquidity to to banks we found doesn't necessarily change the calculus for consumers that have, or depositors rather, that have experienced a large cyber attack. Uh, and, you know, so these, as these attacks continue for some time, the incentive to run grows and grows until we get into a broader banking crisis scenario. Uh, that does have real damages uh, on both the financial system and economy. So these are ransom. What the the scenario is uh, ransomware attacks on smaller banks, where uh, I think there's a, a general sense that I think Joe mentioned this that there's more vulnerability. They just don't have the resources to be able to you know uh, defend yeah. themselves. Yeah, and, that was one of our. Uh, just to jump on that is is the the, the focus on the small and mid mid sized banks was exactly that reason of. Uh, there's gaps in coverage because a lot of the coverage is expensive. The red team testing that Joe was doing in his earlier life is not cheap. Uh, big banks can afford that. Big banks can afford top talent to do that. Um, so that was kind of our door open uh, in a way for, for, for this uh, type of attack. Yeah. And, and so that uh, those attacks led to a loss of confidence, faith in depositors, and kind of sort of what happened back with the Silicon Valley Bank uh, 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 crisis where depositors kind of ran, uh, that uh, happens in this scenario. So Jill, does that does that resonate with you? Is that Do you think that's a, a, a viable threat or or do you think that's far-fetched, that, that, that scenario? No, I mean, so for, first a couple of things. I, I do think that there is... Um, you know, the potential for what I'll call maybe business model contagion. So you, you see some 
um, institution that looks like your your financial institution where you bank having very critical um, you know cyber risks manifest that are you know in the news. Um, and there could be um, some attempt to kind of diversify deposits. Uh, this would probably be more on the commercial side, I would say, though, than the um, the retail side. I did, though, Mark, if it's okay, um, want to share a little data yeah, from, sure. um, on this topic of small yeah. versus large bank and yeah. where the risk is, if that's okay. Because the yeah. most recent Fed supervision report, actually, um, it's not, um, how should I put it? You know, if one were to uh, ideally, um, you know, uh, sort of design a disclosure around this topic, this might not be the ideal disclosure, but it does provide some data on that issue. Um, so the Fed in the um, supervision report that became available, um, uh, and it's, these are data for Q2 2023. So um, they did disclose that of the for community banks, that the top issue in terms of supervisory findings, now you can raise the question, are supervisory findings the same as intrinsic risk? Like you could have mm-hmm. risks that supervisors haven't found, right? But um, in terms of supervisory findings, IT cyber for both community banks and regional banks were the most frequent type of um, supervisory finding. Interesting. Um, like 30% of outstanding community bank findings roughly um, were related to IT cyber and 35% for regional banks. But where it gets even more interesting is for the large bank population. And here the data aren't quite kind of broken out the same. And I want to be very clear. These are about findings, not the number of institutions. So um, that I just quoted for regional Mm -hmm. banks. When you talk about large banks, um, Basically, under the uh, for the large financial institutions, the rating system for them is three pronged. There's a capital component, a liquidity component, and a governance component. And you're either there. There's multiple ratings levels, but you know you're either kind of broadly meeting expectations, or you're you know conditionally, or you're deficient. And so, as of um, Q2 2023, what the supervision report says is that most of the um, large financial institutions in the U.S., the large banks, were meeting expectations on capital and liquidity, but that um, the challenges were really around governance and controls, mainly related to operational resilience, cyber, and anti-money laundering. Um, And the less than satisfactory percentage of the LFIs or the large banks in the U.S. um, in the Fed supervision report is about 50%. So just to kind of get to the bottom line on that, about 50% of large bank um, ratings are less than satisfactory, according to the report, mostly driven by these governance and control operational IT cyber issues, Mm -hmm. um, not related to capital, not related to liquidity. So it does sort of, and, and the other thing that's interesting in the report is it shows a time series for this for the large banks. The amount of non-satisfactory is very stable. Now the report doesn't break out, you know, two years ago mm-hmm. was it more about capital and now mm-hmm. it's more about cyber. But there's some interesting data there that suggests that um, you know, there are meaningful operational cyber resilience issues also at large institutions. So sounds like consistent with 
the concerns uh, represented in this this scenario that we've constructed. Oh yeah, no, I mean it def- yeah. definitely this the supervision. Yeah. but it's right. really for banks of all sizes. Yeah, right. Uh, Jesse, anything more on the or Matt on the first scenario? Uh, I mean, I, I, it, clearly you can construct this in lots of different ways. And in the scenario, we constructed it in a way that it did ultimately end up in causing a loss of confidence, affected equity markets, financial markets more broadly, and landed us in a uh, recession. Uh, but anything else more about that scenario you want to uh, call out, Jesse? I don't think so, Jesse. Do you? I mean, it, I think the Jesse's cycle... frozen. I think. Hey, oh no, I'm here. I, yeah, I just yeah, wanted yeah. to give give Matt oh. a chance oh, okay. to chip in. No, I, I think that the psychological contagion is a big fulcrum for that scenario. Um, it's believable. I think we saw the power of virality in 2023, 2024 with Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, large coordinated movements can happen if everybody's kind of getting the same tweet, text, uh, you know, push notification. Um, so we did rely on that quite a bit um, in, for the, the basis of, of the, that scenario. I don't know, just if you want to add to that yeah, or, one, or touch the second scenario. Yeah, the only other thing I'd say, something that you brought up, Matt, when we were when we were uh, constructing this scenario, is just you know how fast things can move when it's your cell phone, like you mentioned, that gets an alert and depositors can sort of remove their deposits or or move them within minutes and sort of the uh, interconnected digitized banking system of today. And I think that plays a lot, uh, a very big role in our first scenario and how fast uh, risk spreads. Okay. Let's turn to the second scenario. You want to describe that, uh, Matt or Jesse? Yeah, I'll, I'll give it an overview, okay. Mark, um, because it involves the, um, the ACH network and maybe we'll take just a second to explain what that is. Um, the scenario broadly is a really dark scenario um, involving a, a ransomware attack that ultimately leads to the collapse of the retail payment system. So in this scenario, depositors lose access to bank accounts, uh, credit card networks, uh, fearing contagion, suspend service. And so the whole digital payment system we've come to rely on uh, is out. Um, and uh, left in its place, we're all forced to migrate back to checks and cash, uh, imposing just tremendous frictions on, you know, being able to go to the donut shop or get coffee at Wawa. Donut shop. Um, what? I don't know. I, I, yeah. I, I, I uh, there's a great vegan donut place in West Philly that I go to, uh, that I really like. I vegan, imagine that would be vegan donuts. Vegan donuts. <laughs> I knew I'm you were having a hard time getting my mind around that one, but okay. I know. A lot of palm oil, a lot of a lot of coconut oil. In the got batter. it. Got it. Got it. Um, anyway, it's it's sort of a almost a dark doomsday scenario where everything we've come to rely on um, is out of service, and where we ultimately end up is in a large sort of single quarter uh, plummet uh, in consumer spending that drags the rest of the economy with it. Got it. Got it. Hey, Jill, does that? Does that ring true to you? I mean, does that feel like a, a a scenario that has some some possibility, or is that kind of way out on the tail of possibilities? Well, I mean, I think it gets back to thinking about Mark the 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 point that there are things that are pipes, if you will, the plumbing of yep. the financial system, 
And so um, we don't think about the plumbing much when yeah. it's working. And then when it backs up um, and creates lots of problems, then it becomes very, um, I, I don't know about the vegan donuts, but it becomes very, on the vegan donut thing, I must yeah. say, uh, uh, you know, it becomes very painful. And so, um, you know, I think the question of course, is that um, unlike maybe the plumbing in our house, which we take for granted, um, these type of infrastructure are known to be systemic. So one would hope that the level of cyber resilience and resources is higher than maybe the first scenario that, um, you know, Jesse and Matt outlined where you've got, you know, smaller institutions and contagion risk from that. Um, so, you know, maybe kind of it's a, a little bit more of a plausibility test, but again, going back to the BIS piece on quantum, um, you know, there may be scenarios, whether it's, you know, some of the stuff Joe talked about on um, AI enhanced attacks or, um, again, post-quantum type stuff that could make even systems that we think of as fairly um, well-protected, well-resourced um, challenge. I don't know if, if others like Joe have thoughts on that, but. Uh, yeah, uh, Joe, uh, Leslie, uh Covered a lot of ground there. Any anything you'd like to add, Joe? Um, no, I mean, I, I, th okay. I think, yeah, I mean, I think the reality is that the risk is there, and you know, think about especially endpoint payment. Like it's it is very much privatized at this point. There's a lot of mm -hmm. companies that are are delivering privatized endpoint payment devices. It's completely feasible that you know there is a systemic vulnerability across all devices that are connected to the internet that allow that. And that could be used as an entry point into the plumbing, right? So I think it's the same concept of hyper-digitization, hyper-risk. And I think we are well into the hyper-digital age. We're, we're, we're going there, we're, we're in route. Um, we need to secure ourselves along the way. And I think that's that's kind of the main theme here. Yeah, Leslie, anything? No, I what, what just struck me is I think that's that's the impetus behind all of these very ambitious regulations right that are very mm -hmm. technically driven not principle based not capital based they're giving very clear instructions as to the type of defenses are expected to be in place from a technical standpoint and there is recognition of this this digital risk mm -hmm. maybe well, just i'm sorry mark maybe just ahead. one point though on the regulation like i in you know doing some background reading to get ready for this podcast discussion I also read the OCC supervision report. It was a semiannual risk report, and you know some of these things that we talk about for financial institutions—they're very basic that still aren't being done by some financial institutions. And in the OCC's report, they talked about the use of—I'll use the acronym first, and then I'll define it—multi-factor authentication or MFA, and talked about you know like this is the 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 you know that you need to get a text message on your cell phone before you you can do a bank transaction, they talked about that that's not in place for all banks um, in the report. So these are very basic kind of easy cyber things to do, you know, not far, far easier than, you know, um, patching, you know, another thing. Some of the stuff is just still not being done, um, not being invested in. And regulators, in some cases, are asking for it. In other cases, they're recommending it. Um, but the change is, I think, sort of slow for the quantum of risk. 
Well, I know if I uh, didn't get my paycheck from Moody's in my bank account, I would, I'd panic pretty quickly. Uh, so uh, that that does feel like a, a fodder for uh, a good good sized recession. Uh, let's uh, we're, we're coming to time. Uh, maybe we'll end in uh, a different way. Uh, let's end with the the game, the stats game. We each put forward a statistic. The rest of the group tries to figure that out through clues, deductive reasoning, questions. Uh, the best uh, stat is one that isn't so easy. We all, we are all, all going to get it, but I, I'm not worried about that at all. <laughs> this isn't going to be easy, and one that's not so hard that we never get it. But I, that that may be the case here, and and because we've got so many potential players, I'm just going to call on the on the guests uh, from uh, from outside, and we'll play the game. So, uh, Joe, do you want to go first? What's your stat? Uh- is there any rules around this or could I put any? You can that, put anything forward. Anything I, I'm going to put two numbers out there and I, okay. I want to guess what they're representative of. Uh, it is 4 million and it's roughly 12%. 4 million, 12%. Um, it, it has to do with cyber, I'm sure. Number of cyber attacks? No. Over some period? No. Okay. Uh, well, if I if, if it's 12%, what is that? That's... Uh, what 450 million or something uh 12 percent of uh four percent uh 12 percent is not part of the it would be like 12 oh it's all it's a whole different it's a totally it's unrelated to the four million yeah it, it is part oh. of is a characteristic of the four million oh oh i see i see <laughs> uh there are four million entities in the united states business entities 12 percent get your highest score from bitsite no. no. Okay. <laughs> it is. It Am I is, close? Think, Am I close? <laughs> think. Uh, think. Security gap. That is. That is the only hint that I'll give. Security gap. Jill. Leslie. Any, any ideas? Four million. Is it U.S. based? Is it uh, global? Globally. Oh, it's global. And is it? Is it four million entities? People. Um, it's people. People, four million people. And four million 12, people, 12%. Yeah, 12% of four million people have had something, have had some Open experience. Cyber job openings? Yes. Ah. Oh. There, there is an estimated four million uh, person gap in cybersecurity expertise right now, and it's estimated to grow at roughly 12% every year between now and 2030-ish. Oh, that's a good one. Way to go, Leslie. That was very good. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Get a cowbell. So, yeah, we we need a cowbell for you. Um, the so the that across the globe, there are there's a shortfall of cyber professionals of four million, and that's growing twelve percent per annum. Yep, exactly. Got it. Great. And, and where did that come from? That estimate? Uh, it is. Yeah. It, it's. I it, I believe it's from one of the internet centers. I don't remember exactly where, yeah. but I remember reading it. Well, this uh, I can, this I can look up exactly where it came from, Joe. This this is exactly what I was saying. I mean, you're going to be a very wealthy man. That's all I'm saying. I mean, four million shortfall. You should be, you should be demanding a ton of equity in this bit side yeah. company. <laughs> yeah, ton, ton, ton of equity. But Mark, think about that number and the conversation we were having about non-bank financial institutions who are state regulated, and then think about trying to get the talent. Oh, yeah. Do IT supervision right. in that kind of a job market. Right. You know, at, at, at state salaries. Yeah. Good luck. Okay. Jill, you're up. What's your stat? 
Okay, so um, 300 plus. That's your stat? 300 plus? Stat, 300, well, so 300 plus, and it relates to um, community banks. Community banks. 300 plus community banks. Am I on the right track? <laughs> it, it, it relates to the theme of this podcast. Yeah, they, they, now we, the rating agency, you, do you do some kind of ranking with regard to cyber preparedness? I think you do, right? Is that at, at a sector level? Not oh, at a sector level. level. You don't yeah. do it at an individual bank level. Okay. Okay. So that's not it. What do you think, Chris, Marissa, Jesse? Is this also job related, Jill? It's not job related. No. Okay. Is it regulatory related? It is regulatory related. Very good guess, Mark. Okay. And is it, it has something to do with the supervisory notices? Might have to do with findings. Yes. You're getting findings? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're okay. basically there. They, according to the supervision report, there was yeah. over a thousand um, community bank supervisory findings. Yeah. Approximately 300, uh, 30% of them were um, related to IT cyber. So good. you get to 300 outstanding findings in the community banking space. Again, that's some fraction of the vulnerability, but it's, you know, supervisors never find everything, no matter how how hard you try. And I'm going to take credit for getting that one right. I'm just Sit, I'm just yeah, I think that. you did. Just, I think we could bring the gong for you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Cowbell, no gongs. Cowbell. Oh, okay. <laughs> Leslie, you're up. What's your stat? Uh, I'll give you 53%. Say that again? 53%. And I'll give you a hint that it's based on something we collected. Oh, so, Jesse, some, that might help you. Something that M, the rating agency collects. The rating agencies collected. Through f- surveys, through your surveys. Mm-hmm. So fifty-three percent of of some something related to a sur- one of the surveys that that the the rating agency. Jesse, what do you think? Fifty-three percent. Um, well, well, financial. Oh, do I have to recuse myself, Leslie? Or, or no, can I, I think you can control F because you can find it. Uh, in the paper. Um, might even be in our own paper. Um, fifty-three oh. uh, percent of global financial institutions. Um, back up their systems at least once a week. Ooh, that I I like that. Boy, that was pretty good. I don't think it's right, but it's pretty good. <laughs> in the vicinity. Oh, it is. Okay, what is it, Leslie? Fifty-three percent. It was based on the cyber survey that we collected. Yeah. Collected in for information from two hundred forty uh, financial institutions, and fifty-three percent of them said that they had reported a significant cyber incident to their board in the past two years. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Ooh, yeah, interesting. that is not in our paper. I mean, we yeah, should yeah. revise, tuck it in yeah. there, it sounds <laughs> get like one a, more addition out. Seems sounds like at least a footnote or something. Well, yeah. <clears throat> okay, well, th- you guys have been great. I know this is late Friday afternoon before MLK weekend. You've been yeoman uh, participants, and I really appreciate that. Before we sign off, it, it just I'll throw it out to the group. Anything that we missed that you think is important uh, that you'd like to bring uh, to the podcast before we leave? Just open-ended. Matt, anything? No? Okay. Joe, anything? Yeah? No? Okay. All right. Uh, very good. Well, uh, I think we're going to call this a, a podcast. Uh, I hope everyone thought it was uh, informative and useful, and I certainly did, and I'm looking forward to the weekend. So take care, everyone. We'll call this a podcast.